The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Geeks, and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 84.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. Now, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It really was a lot of fun talking to Mike Schwartz, having him back on. So many little peeks into his comic book collecting experience. We'll have to have him back on to hear more about that. Uh, speaking of which, one of the things that was mentioned there, remember how he was surprised to learn that Peter David had written the Little Mermaid series for Marvel. Well, that's not something I just knew off the top of my head. In fact, that was something that was mentioned in the Magic Word section. So just as a quick little follow-up, I wanted to read that for you here. Dear Jim, in Disney's Little Mermaid number three, a story called Guppy Love was written by Peter David. Would this be the same Peter David who writes Supergirl? Brian Whiteman, Maydock, Ontario, Canada. It would. David himself says, quote, not only did I write issue three of Little Mermaid, but I also wrote one, two, and four. I should really pull out those old issues and read them to my six-year-old daughter, Ariel, named after the lead character in the film The Little Mermaid. So isn't that crazy? Not only did he write the comic that he named his daughter after it, Peter David is all about The Little Mermaid. So just a fun bit of history there. But yeah, overall, just a great, great issue. There's so much to talk about here. So many things that really stood out to me. So let's get into, though, our, our main excitement as we kick off these episodes, let's check out Cap's Kooky Contests. So interestingly enough, right after the Witchblade number 500 ad, you know, the offer to mail away for that issue, there is a contest that is being sponsored by Top Cow Productions called Child of Darkness. And it's an art contest, so you know it's going to end up in their drawing board section eventually. But it says here, poor Jackie Estacado, wielder of the darkness. We're sure that Jackie wants to have kids, but unlike normal guys, if Jackie sires a rug rat, he's toast. But what if this wasn't so? What if he could make a baby. What would it look like? Well, guess what? That's what we want you to show us. If Jackie started a family with any female character in comics, what would this child look like? If he had a child with She-Hulk, would it be green? What about his child with little Lulu? Damage control! I don't think that was a good choice, Wizard. All right, but either way, the prizes here. Grand prize, one master creator wins a sketch of the darkness drawn by Joe Benitez, a cool darkness t-shirt, a darkness poster, the darkness 1 through 17 signed by Mark Silvestri, the original trading card art by Silvestri, plus he'll have his sketch printed in the letters column of an upcoming issue of the darkness. Now that's the goods. Now we're gonna have to track down that issue. Great. Uh, first prize, two weird scientists each win a complete set of the darkness collected editions signed by Mark Silvestri, a darkness t-shirt, and a darkness poster. Second prize, five mad doctors each win a darkness poster, cool darkness stickers, and a copy of the darkness number 17 signed by Joe Benitez. Okay, so obviously they tell you, you know, don't fold, bend, or roll your artwork, use unlined paper, they give you all those details here. But then it says here, this contest is sponsored by Top Cow Productions, provider of the finest in make-believe. Ah, Now let's get into the legal rights 
of a child. <laughs> Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Entertainment, Top Cow Productions, their immediate families, and every deadbeat dad. Pay up already! Here, here. Alright, let's find our next joke. Uh, odds of winning will be determined by the number of valid entries received prior to the closing date of the contest. If you were punished and couldn't get out to mail your entry, tough. If you were punished? What does that have to do with the darkness? I guess if you're just in trouble? <laughs> you're grounded, so you couldn't put anything in the mail? That's interesting. Alright, let's get to our next contest here. So this one is interesting because this is like a manga, anime-inspired contest. This is Darkstalk revenge yes they jump right to the prizes for this one grand prize one amazing get it an amazing soul will win the entire night warriors dark stalkers revenge the animated series volumes one through two on dvd a dvd player to play it on the super street fighter 2 cami graphic novel and the resident evil soundtrack on cd that's wild selection you know just in terms of the various properties being covered but a dvd player in 1998 Eight? I mean, that was the highest technology, so that's a pretty big deal. First prize, five big-eyed readers will win a dubbed copy of Volumes 1 through 4 of Night Warriors Dark Soccer's Revenge, the animated series, on VHS. And second prize, ten Kung Fu fighters will win a dubbed copy of Volume 1 of Night Warriors Dark Soccer's Revenge, the animated series, on VHS. So already, VHS is being considered the lower tier. You know, you don't get the top prize, you don't get the top home media format. And they say, here's what you do to cash in on the ultra hot prize packages see that entry form below fill it out completely that means all the little lines stick it in an envelope affix the proper postage that's 32 cents here in the united states oh those were the days and mail it on in we'll sort through the stacks and pick a bunch at random then we'll send the cool prizes including a brand new dvd player off to those lucky winners easy enough get cracking now the one thing they do ask at the bottom is how many of your friends watch viz videos it's like one to four or five to nine ten or more your favorite viz character they say do you want a viz catalog you can say yes have you ever bought anything from viz's online store so there's lots of stuff just to promote and let you know what is available if you're into manga get it from viz i know that i bought uh some viz graphics i think they did produce the uh giver translated manga that i bought back in the day and also i'm not a big manga guy but i do sell a lot of it on ebay like when i find them at the goodwill or thrift stores for cheap immediately when i post them people buy them so people love the old manga they're trying to find their collection for cheap as well you know i try to make it affordable anyway it says this contest is sponsored by viz communications master of manga the authority on anime all right so dubbed legal text contest is open to anyone except employees of wizard entertainment viz communications their immediate families and everyone that pronounces manga incorrectly if you're gonna say it learn how to say it right already and next all taxes, federal, state, local, of any, will be the responsibility of the prize winners. Just so you know, it's manga. Pronounced like conga, but with an M. Hey, I've never heard that before. That actually is very helpful. Kaga and manga. <laughs> So those are the only official wizard contests in this issue, but there is something else special in the wizard news section. So there is a big ad in this issue for the movie Basketball. Do you remember Basketball starring Trey Parker and Matt Stone? Yes, the creators of South Park. They were leveraging their influence and got themselves a starring role in a film, okay? So I was not a big South Park fan, but for some reason my friends wanted to go see Basketball, so I went with them. I did see this in theaters. 
And here in the Wizard News section, they have the Enter the Basketball Sweepstakes. Hey, sports fans, want to play? Two Denslow Cup prizes, a trip for two to the 1999 sports event of your choice, a $1,300 value. They do say it's continental U.S. only. Uh, five Psych Out prizes, $100 shopping sprees at both Fredericks of Hollywood and Spencer Gifts, a $200 value. I don't know, Fredericks of Hollywood, you're going to buy lingerie and then you're going to go to Spencer's Gifts and buy some inappropriate... <laughs> gag gifts. Number five, third base prizes. You don't know Jack movies and you don't know Jack sports CD-ROM set from Berkeley Systems. Uh, five second base prizes, five basketball games, and five basketball caps. Now, what are the basketball games? Like, is, did they have a board game? Did they have a home version of how you can set up a basketball arena? And five first base prizes, five soundtracks from Mojo Records, and five inflatable basketballs. You know, so you can just uh, recreate that infamous movie poster and, you know, the placement of those balls. Anyway, just pick up an entry form at any participating Spencer's Gifts or Fredericks of Hollywood. This had to be some sort of inside joke. Why was Fredericks of Hollywood at any point involved in basketball, the promotion of the film? Are they in the movie? I can't remember. I mean, it just feels like an inside joke for the South Park team. Like, they were just like, see if we can get Fredericks of Hollywood to sponsor our dumb movie. <laughs> That's hilarious. Anyway, that does it for these contests. However, there is a special offer in this issue that is not just the Witchblade 500 that I feel like we failed to mention, and that is the exclusive Madman action figure. So this is from Big Blast and Graffiti Designs, and this is a Madman figure that was truly unique because they were offering him, like, in his classic white costume, his black costume with a jetpack, like, with a lot of different doodads you could get, but it says... Get this cool 8-inch Madman figure with a totally new Frank Einstein head. It's an exclusive, never-before-seen toy that we specially commissioned just for this issue. But man, is he limited. So get off your keister and order the snappiest action figure since G.I. Joe with Kung Fu Grip. It's just 10 clams, plus 4 more for postage and handling. So send that 14 bucks in today for your limited edition, limited edition, as Michael loves to say, exclusive Madman action figure. Okay, so, mentioned in the past, that I always saw the standard Madman figures in my local comic book store, and even though I was starting to buy his comics at this time, they were a little pricey, and I just never was willing to pay more than $10 for an action figure. I was always like, they were like 15 or 20 and I was always like, oh, I don't know. But then, as mentioned during this episode, I went to Retrocon several years back, digging through some bins under a table, found all of the action figures except this one, which I did find super affordable on eBay. I got lucky one day and was able to grab it, so now I have every Madman action figure from this era on display in my office. It's often in our YouTube videos if you watch those. If you look carefully, you'll see him back there. So anyway, it was just very cool to see where it all came from, what it was all about. But now, hey, let's get on to our next bit of fun here. It's time to check out what Wizard thought of the current crop of comics with Report Card. All right, this time around, it's our same crew 
Brian Cunningham, Andrew Carden, Mike Searle. So we are talking about the Uncanny X-Men at this point, being written by Steven Siegel, being drawn by Chris Bocciolo, Tim Townsend working on there. So let's see, they say X marks the spot. What you need to know. Well, you guys know. <laughs> All right, the good. The storytelling is the most solid it's been in the years. Uncanny X-Men tells stories that not only end, something the series has had difficulty with for over 15 years, but have powerful framing sequences, foreshadowing scenes, intriguing metaphors, cliffhangers, and perhaps most importantly, tales that focus on the characters rather than on the characters revolving around the next big X crossover. Speaking of characters, for the most part, we're digging them. Rogue is finally dealing with an overwhelming need for human touch, which may shatter her relationship with the rest of the team. G. Grey has adopted the old Phoenix costume and namesake of her deceased cosmic doppelganger, which wound up becoming Dark Phoenix, obliterating the inhabitants of the entire solar system way back in Uncanny number 135, and is exhibiting a massive increase in power, causing alarm for her hubby Cyclops. The current storyline beginning in number 356 might be the best one yet, focusing solely on the five original X-Men as they bond together in Alaska. These guys finally feel like friends again, and more importantly, people. All this storytelling is augmented by the quirky yet evocative artwork and may be a different looking X-book, but it takes us from faithful renderings, an Asian jubilee, a short Wolverine, to the fantastic Rogue's eerie dream sequence in number 353 where she sucks up Wolverine's powers. Now the bad. There are way too many characters in the X-Men lineup. Fifteen total. Cecilia Reyes has an issue dedicated to her, number 351. Then we don't see her again for five issues. In the issues we read, Psylocke's only in six panels and other characters like Bishop, Cannonball, Maggot, and Marrow are severely shortchanged. We get no feel for them as characters, and new readers will be clueless as to who they are or what their powers are. The buzz. Our criticism of too many characters will be addressed in the August big Children of the Atom X crossover, as the team's lineup will be pared down to a manageable seven members, with an eighth rounding it off in September. The Skinny, this is the best run of X-Men books we've read in a long while. The stories are cohesive, with foreshadowing, good subplots, and closure, and some of our favorite characters like Cyclops, Phoenix, and Rogue are back as real characters, with a few lineup improvements. This book is primed for a higher grade, and that grade is... B. So they're giving it a B. It's definitely improving from where it had been. I mean, this is just echoing everything that we hear from you guys on social media every time we post something about this era. So glad to know you didn't all just have rose-colored glasses. Now here's another return to form, it seems. The Flash. Speedy reading. Now this is Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, Paul Ryan, Ron Wagner, so kind of some different creative teams filling in before Mark Wade was supposed to be coming back, as I understand. So let's check this out here. What you need to know... Well, you know. Anyway, the good. Flash hooks you like no other comic series. We dare readers to crack open an issue and not be hooked by these plots. In issue number 130, Flash finds his own dead body with a note saying he has 60 minutes to solve his murder. Flash comes home to see his girlfriend walking and talking backwards in time, and if he doesn't act fast, she'll rewind quicker and quicker until she disappears forever. If that isn't enough, this book's got some of the best cliffhangers in the biz. Whether it's Flash lying on the ground with two severely broken legs, or a severely defeated G-Force announcing that the Flash must win the ultimate race or Earth dies? Each issue just leaves you begging for more. Adding to this is the heavy infusion of science. There's everything from Flash simply turning off the lights so Mirror Master can't use his mirror and light-based powers, to the Flash using speed force energy to create his costume. And even with its rapid pacing, Flash still has enough time for characterization. Issue 134 actually makes you care about the old Grandpa Flash, Jay Garrick, simply by spending a day with him and his wife on their 50th wedding anniversary. The bad. As cool as it is, Flash occasionally gets a bit too hokey. 
There's the whole haunted costume story arc. Flash's imaginary childhood radio friend, who's actually a real creature from a planet of crackly little critters. And the Flash running through a prism, turning himself into seven different colored Flashes. Cool stories? Sure, but they'd be a whole lot cooler without the cheese ball aspects. At times, Flash is a bit too fast for his own good. During the Mirror Master storyline, things got very confusing very quickly. Flash was apparently trapped in a mirror world fighting against another version of himself, but things never slowed down enough for readers to follow what was going on. And don't even get us started on 130's time-traveling elements where the Flash went back in time to save his own life. We're still scratching our heads at exactly what happened. The buzz. Thanks to Grant Morrison's popularity with JLA, Flash has raced up the sales charts. With Mark Wade and Brian Augustin returning to the title in August, expect this book to be on everyone's list. The skinny, with some neat plots, a dose of scientific reality, and great cliffhangers, Flash just keeps on coming back for more. Let's hope that when Wade and Augustin return, they can keep up the pace. So the grade, a B plus. So beating out the X-Men just ever so slightly. Ah uh, yeah, this is another thing I've always heard. I've only read a few issues of the Wade run. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, because uh, these are issues I will just say when I go back issue bins that I never find. Like I never see old issues of the Flash. So it makes me wonder, okay, were people not buying it? And then when they sold out their collection, it was not included, or did people hang on to those and sell off the rest of their 90s comics? That is a question I have. All right, this last one here, speaking of questions I have, is why does everybody love this book so much, at least everybody at Wizard? That is Mage, the hero defined, and they call it Hocus Pocus Slocus. <laughs> So, of course, this is all written and drawn by Matt Wagner, and they are saying here, What you need to know, The Hero Defined is the second series of the Mage Trilogy. It stars Kevin Matchstick, a modern-day incarnation of King Arthur, who roams the Earth trying to rid the world of nasties, demons, goblins, trolls, etc., with his trusty enchanted baseball bat. Joining him are the fast-footed Joe Fat and the Herculean Kirby Hero. The good. This series concept is way cool. It takes the attitudes and abilities of mythical heroes and throws them into today's society. Kevin's bat represents the sword, Excalibur. Kirby, with his quest to complete 12 labors, is a modern-day Hercules. Joe, aka the Coyote, is a 90s version of Hiawatha. The Dragon Slayer is Siegfried. As more and more heroes show up, it's a lot of fun guessing who they represent. While Mage is set in today's world, the fantasy aspects stay true to their roots. There's a Gretchen's Dwarf Stone collection, Dwarf Eye eventually turned into precious gems. In issue three, the witch called Isis. Yep, no guessing games here. Casts a homing hex on a minibus, number four, and a riddle spewing troll that lives under a bridge in number one. The collection of heroes gathering up north for some sort of ensuing conflict keeps you wondering what's up. And the fact that each hero has some emblem on his clothing, Kirby's got a lion head, Joe has a thin lightning bolt, and Bear Wolf has a Grendel head, appeals to the superhero fan in us. As for the art, Matt Wagner's style may seem simple and sometimes sketchy, but it fits with the series and gives the colorists lots of room to play with. Not to mention the book's action sequences are top-notch. The bad. Mage moves too slowly. It takes seven issues just to gather all the heroes in one place and have the villain finally create his monstrous weapon. Sure, things look like they're just about to take off, but we're a little bit turned off by the series' relative lack of direction. A casual reader probably would have dropped the book by now. The buzz? Despite Mage's decade-plus layoff, the first series ended in 1986, fans are getting jiggy with Kevin's new adventures and sales are climbing steadily. Issues 1 through 4 were recently collected into a trade paperback. 
The skinny, while we really dig the characters and the concept of the series, the story's taking way too long to find its way. Perhaps when it's all done and read in one sitting, it'll go down a lot smoother, but in monthly installments, it loses a lot of its magic. The grade, B-. So B's across the board here, though. There is nothing terrible, there is nothing fantastic, just a lot of middle-of-the-road storytelling in comics, according to Wizard at this time. So there you go. Now why don't we find out what I've been thinking about the comics from 1998 that I've been reading recently with another edition of Robin's Reading Rainbow. Alright, so as mentioned on the main episode, I managed to pick up the entire run of Mutant X, this new series that was replacing X-Factor, and it is uh, interesting. I mean, again, I always love an alternate reality, whether it's an Elseworlds tale, whether it's a what-if, whatever it might be. It feels like a jumping-on point, it feels like a new world that you could explore, and that's definitely what they were going for with this book, Howard Mackey and Tom Rainey, which is kind of interesting to me because, you know, Howard Mackey, we just spent this issue talking about how he's taking over the Spider-Man books, kind of relaunching that, and I thought at some point he was going to be jumping off at least these first 12 issues that I'm reading, and no, he sticks with it all the way through, so either it was, you know, produced way before the Spider-Man decision was made, or he's just that prolific. Tom Rainey's art is solid, I feel like it gets the point across, it's got a little bit of that cartoony Joe Mad edge, but it's also just real solid, like, proportions, I guess you would say, to where you're like, okay, it's got traditional comic book art roots as well. Now, as far as the story itself, so we read about the premise that basically Alex Summers ends up in the body of another Alex Summers uh, that is in an alternate reality. I don't know that it's quite a future, it's just an alternate reality. And when he gets there in the middle of a battle and basically merges with this other version of himself, you know, he is very confused, he doesn't know what's going on, he sees faces, he sort of recognizes but not quite and these faces are Madeline Summers who is not Madeline Pryor the Goblin Queen right she is married to Havoc in this reality although most everybody just calls him Alex Summers I don't remember anybody referring to him as Havoc Uh, so they have a son who is little Scotty that everybody talks about named after Scott Summers, who died as a child in this reality. And so there's a whole thing right there. Cyclops doesn't exist. As far as other members of the team, you have Iceman. Yes, Bobby Drake is there, but it's Ice-Man. Like, that makes a huge difference. But basically, his struggle is that he can't control his ice powers. They say something about having gone to Asgard and the Frost Giants, like, overloaded his powers. So he's like, if I touch anybody, they'll die. That's his main story struggle that really isn't explored much. You know, they mention it a few times, and he's not a real deep character in this series, nor is The Fallen. He's a pivotal character, but you might be saying, who is The Fallen? Well, that is Warren Worthington III looking like Archangel and being much more stoic. It kind of seems like, okay, Apocalypse changed him, and maybe he's free of that role, but he's still kind of after his own... Like, I don't even know why he's a member of the 
this team, which, by the way, is called the Six, instead of, you know, the X-Men or X-Factor or anything. They're just called the Six. They're kind of like the premier superhero team of this universe. Mutants are generally accepted in society, but the Fallen, like I say, is just this real brooding character. But then you also get the Brute, who is Hank McCoy, the Beast. And as we know, you know, in our reality that we're used to, he was kind of an ape-looking human, tries to get rid of his mutant powers by taking a serum he's concocted. Now he becomes furry and blue. Well, in this universe, now he's green and furry, but he's also kind of got these fins on his head. He has goat legs. Like, you can see that he's been genetically altered, and, and he also speaks like a child. He's kind of a simpleton. So he's the one who is the kindest to Alex when he arrives in this new reality, kind of walks him through things in an easy-to-understand way. But he basically just says he kept experimenting with himself, and eventually it, it diminished his brain capacity. He's like, everybody always tells me I used to be smart. You know, so it's kind of an interesting take. He's kind of like Lenny from Of Mice and Men, where he's a little too powerful sometimes. He can go into these rages. Uh, the last character is very interesting is Bloodstorm. Yes, so it's Storm, as Bob Harris said in that little Wizard News report. But she was turned by Dracula, but never was cured of her vampirism. So now she is a vampire. She's mysterious, but everybody says they really trust her. They're like, we, you know, she's someone I'd love to have beside me in battle, but off the battlefield, I don't know what's going on with her because she just disappears at night. Obviously, she needs to feed on humans, but we've never seen her drink blood. How is she surviving? Let's get into that real quick here before I get into any major plot points because I thought it was interesting. You know, what this series has is all these guest stars, you know, familiar yet unfamiliar as they show up. And at one point, you know, several issues in, you see Bloodstorm go back to this castle. You know, it's dark and mysterious. It's all foggy and everything around it. But when she gets there, Kitty Pride is like her assistant, is her friend. I don't know what you want to say. Obviously, Kitty and Aurora had a lot of history, especially, you know, those early Claremont years. They would definitely have a bond. So I guess that's what they're building off of. Uh, so that's going on where she's just like, okay, I'm here to assist you. But also you see who has she been feeding off of? Well, it's her lover, Forge, right? Again, the Forge storm relationship is well documented. And so basically he allows her to feed on him a little bit at a time just to stay alive. As far as what is the plot of this series, what is going on? Well, you see that Alex Summers has been quantum leaped into his own body in an alternate reality. And he keeps saying, I remember the moment of my death. So he remembers when he should have died in the regular reality in the last issue of X Factor. And then now we see that he is trying to make sense of it all. And he's tried to tell everybody when they're not fighting something, you know, when there's not a battle, like, hey, I'm not who you think I am. I don't know what's going on, but nobody wants to believe him. They're just like, oh, you're shell-shocked or you just need to recover and you'll come back to yourself. You almost died. Those types of things, you know, it's just trauma. So he decides to play along in the meantime, except that little Scotty, you know, the son of Madeline and Alex from this reality says, I know you're not my daddy. So he definitely has some sort of, you know, telepathic ability or something that he says, I don't know you. I don't necessarily trust you, but that's a relationship that builds over time where he starts trusting Alex more because 
Madeline Pryor, right? We know that her history in our reality, she becomes the Goblin Queen, I believe Mr. Sinister, the clone of Jean Grey, and so they actually later refer to her as Marvel Woman or something, and I was like, oh, Marvel Woman? Okay, that's an interesting name. They really don't bring it up very often at all, but she struggles ultimately with the Goblin Queen entity trying to take her over again. So after the first few issues wherein it's actually Nick Fury, who's like a bigoted government military guy who wants to destroy all mutants, and so the first, you know, big story is that he is putting out this, I guess it's like a, I don't know, a chemical weapon, it's a bomb that will explode in the atmosphere and kill anybody with superpowers. Somehow he isolated that ability. Then the six have to come together to fight him, to stop him, to get the bomb out of the way, because otherwise he's Nick Fury. He's just not a friend to superheroes like he is in our reality. I will say the other character that gets thrown into the mix at the beginning you see as well, who takes care of Scotty when the parents have to go out and fight evil? Well, it's Elektra. Yes, Daredevil's X-Flame, Elektra, and she just basically looks like Elektra always did, and she gets in on the action too. She pulls out her size. It's like, aren't you supposed to be taking care of the kid? But then she'll come out to the fight. Once that's all over and done with, like I said, the majority of the series is the Goblin Queen working behind the scenes. I never 100% got what her plan was. Like, what is she trying to do? It's just like the Goblin Queen entity wants to be in control, but she starts manipulating different members of the team. So, like, the Fallen is already kind of corrupt and evil, so he goes along with her immediately, and he's just kind of like, yes, whatever you need, I'll secretly work behind the scenes, we'll pretend to be good, but, you know, really we're working towards your ends. The first person, at least, that they're able to get to is the Brute. Why? Well, there is a cameo at one point where they're in the middle of a battle where the man spider and the green goblin are fighting each other. Remember, the man spider, as I said in the main episode, has the six arms, but otherwise he just looks like Spider-Man. He's doing his quips. He's having his probably 200th battle with the green goblin in this reality. And they end up having this kind of standoff, but then the fallen and Madeline Pryor, I keep calling her Madeline Pryor, she's Madeline Summers, but essentially the Goblin Queen now is there and so is the Brute and Spider-Man actually starts defending the Goblin because she wants to kill him and he's like hey 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 you know we're not trying to take it that far that's not what we're doing here he's like calm down and she kills both of them she kills Spider-Man and the Green Goblin and you're like whoa what's going on here and the Brute is like no you can't do that Spider-Man's a good guy so now the Fallen and Madeline Pryor are like hey you're gonna go along with our plan or we're gonna hurt your friends oh Bob He's really nice to you, isn't he? Well, we're going to hurt him if you don't keep your mouth shut. And so in that process, though, when everybody comes in and says, hey, what happened here? Madeline and the Fallen are like, oh, he's out of control. He went into one of his berserker rages and he killed them. So then he gets arrested and put on trial, which, you know, and he won't say anything, though. He, Alex tries to talk to him. He's like, hey, what went on here, buddy? And he's like, I can't. They'll hurt my friends and all this stuff. But he won't specify who is they and all those types of things. So you got that kind of mystery going on in the meanwhile. Also, 
Of course, Alex Summers, his main goal in all of this is he's trying to find his way back to his reality. He's trying to get back home. Still, nobody believes him. He brings it up every once in a while. Everybody says, we love you. No, you'll be fine soon. And so he goes to Reed Richards. And the first time they meet up, basically everybody pulls him back and says, don't talk to Reed. You know how he feels about you. Like they have like some history there that nobody's explained. And really it doesn't get explained very well. Uh, But it just says, hey, you know, you guys are not friends in this reality. But later on, the six end up saving the Fantastic Four during a battle. And so he basically says, well, I owe you. Let me help you out. He's kinder to him. And then he does his testing on him and he says, well, yeah, it looks like I can help you. And Alex is like, this is great. I knew Mr. Fantastic could do it. And this Reed Richards is like, huh? Mr. Huh? And he's like, oh, never mind. Because as I mentioned in the main episode, this Fantastic Four, they didn't get exposed to cosmic rays. They just wear power suits that give them various abilities. But anyway, he says, yeah, I can help you get some mental help. Like, I can help you meet a therapist who can walk you through this because there's no abnormality in who you are, no dimensional vibrations in your cells or anything that says you don't belong here. You are Alex Summers. You just need to get a grip on our reality. And he's like, oh no, so now I'm stuck here. But later on, so we've seen that they had an antagonistic relationship that he's kind of helping him because he feels he owes him. Later on, Alex goes, back again and Reed Richards is like super he's like oh Alex my friend blah 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 and you're like well this is kind of a change like how did that happen and basically you find out that it's not Mr. Fantastic it's this little interdimensional creature that is part of the they're like like little green aliens with wings basically kind of like Watto a little bit mixed with a gray alien but they're green they say oh you know we're invading your dimension we're gonna take over but the six stop them pretty quickly so that there was just a little fake out there. Now, as far as the other storylines, like like I say, pretty much everything that plays out, like at a certain point, you know, the Beast goes to trial for killing the Man Spider and the Green Goblin, and Matt Murdock is there, but he doesn't show any signs of being Daredevil. He's just a lawyer, so he's there. Gwen Stacy is alive, and she is a news reporter, so that's just kind of fun. She's reporting on the trial, but the story really just revolves around, okay, the Goblin Queen is trying to meet some ends, again, that never stuck out to me. She wants to, you know, have this boy. It seems to be her only focus. Like, Alex is trying to protect Scotty from his mother because Scotty could say, oh, she's not my mom. Again, this telepathic ability. And over that period of the protection, he's like, oh, I trust you. I know you're not my real dad, but I really do feel like I would want you to be my dad. So it's very sweet that way. But it's basically just Madeline and the Fallen. And then she starts basically like Loki in the Avengers she kind of hypnotizes everybody on the team because she could put them kind of in a fantasy reality or fix them like Iceman joins her just because he can now control his ice powers a little bit more she somehow put a damper on whatever the problem was same with Bloodstorm she ends up under her thrall and so it's just playing out issue after issue okay they're chasing they want the boy they're gonna you know keep the boy away from her but now there's more members of the team that have turned on them even at a certain point 
Alex like talks to Iceman and Bloodstorm and he's like, hey guys, I know you're in there. I know. And they're like, we are, but she's given us everything we wanted and we can't resist or something like that. It's kind of strange actually uh, how that plays out. Even to the point where the brute who was framed by them, she eventually takes him over and now he's super intelligent again. So now he talks like the beast from the animated series cartoon, right? He's all highfalutin and he's got his wisdom, his knowledge, whatever back. And so at this point, it's everybody against Alex and Scotty. And I should mention that going along with Alex is Electra, and they're kind of building this romantic relationship in some way. So they're kind of, you know, playing parent to Scotty, uh, which is interesting. So how's that going to play out? Well, before we get to that, we do get a few more fun cameos. The first of which is Cerebro. So they actually go to the old X mansion where they talk about Magneto and the X-Men existing, like Magneto is the leader of the X-Men, but they don't still don't show up for quite a while. And when they go to the X-Mansion, though, Cerebro is like a full robot. So it's like a robot that could actually just move around and walk around. At first, I thought it was that New Mutants character. What's his name? The guy who's like all weird and uh, you know, black and kind of got yellow highlights. Warlock, that's his name. Yeah, it looks like Warlock like merged with Cerebro or something like that. It's kind of strange. So that's going on. They get this thing that will block them from Sentinels, like he, it provides to Alex. But anyway, so there are Sentinels also in this reality that, you know, get sent after mutants every once in a while, I guess if there's a violation or something. But anyway, so, so they're on the move. Uh, I did fail to mention just because it's just dropped in to get Wolverine into a story, but it really doesn't play into anything. And that is in like the second or third issue, they meet the pack. They're they're in the Canadian wilderness and there are these naked guys that look really feral and they are kind of surrounding them. And the, who are they? Well, it's Wolverine, it's Sabretooth and Wild Child. And they can't really speak. They just grunt, but they're also not killing. They're just kind of like stalking them and they take them to this like underground bunker which is the site of the Weapon X project and they see some old video footage it's like yes they got the adamantium yes they got this procedure but then it messed with their brains instead of you know them becoming their super soldiers for the program that's just kind of like a nothing story it's just like well here's X-Men here's Wolverine here's what he does in this reality now don't worry about it because he's a dum-dum and he can't <laughs> help anybody so anyway so so that is another little cameo that was worked in but then at a certain point like I say the Fantastic Four kind of become the allies for Alex and Elektra and everybody and they end up getting also some help from the Mole Man who again is in this reality not like one of their greatest foes he is an ally you know so he brings his underground creature from the cover of Fantastic Four number one to battle the Goblin Queen but it doesn't do too much because Magneto shows up finally yes at the end of issue nine you get Magneto and his X-Men now, this was really cool because this is kind of what I was expecting from the beginning, right? Like, show us the X-Men universe and then let us see what their new take on these characters is. Now, the number one is not really different, but it's Polaris is Magneto's, you know, number one, second in command. As, of course, Havoc and Polaris Lorna have this big relationship, right? So he's like, oh, you know, he's, he's pining for her, but she's like, ah, yeah, hi, yeah, I know who you are 
but we have nothing, you know? And then Magneto is an old man now. You can see he's really worn out. They've been fighting in space. They haven't been around, you know, on Earth helping out with much. But also, interestingly enough, Rogue apparently absorbed Colossus and killed him. So she has the Miss Marvel costume on, the black one with the lightning bolt symbol, but then her body is metal and it looks like Colossus. I thought that was the coolest redesign of the whole thing. And she really doesn't do much. She doesn't talk. They don't get into it. But she is just a really cool idea. Like, oh, okay. So that is somewhere you can take Rogue. Like, she absorbs Miss Marvel and Colossus. Who else has she got in there? You know? Quicksilver is in the mix as well. He just wears, like, a costume. So he's got, like, a full helmet on that's very aerodynamic. So you don't really see much of him. And of course, Nightcrawler finds his way into it as well. And he's about the same as you would expect. There's nothing different about him other than he doesn't really wear a costume. He's just kind of there. You know, he's Kurt, you know, and he's just talking, you know, he's quippy and whatever else. So that was what I was a little disappointed. I was like, you couldn't do anything with Nightcrawler? I should mention also, there is in the mix here a uh, Mystique. But she, like, does nothing. Like, she's all silver for some reason. She looks like the robot from the movie Metropolis. Like, but, like, really, she's there, but she's not a part of the story. She's, like, in the action, in an action scene, but you don't know anything about her. You don't see her shapeshift or anything like that. So I was like, what is the point of putting Mystique on this team if you're not going to literally do anything with her? Eventually, there is a time where Carrie Nord does some fill-in issues. I don't know if Tom Rainey was trying to catch up or what and I do in some ways prefer the Carrie Nord look I liked his art on Daredevil when he was doing that and I reviewed it it's not as defined that's kind of his thing right is that he doesn't show a lot of definition but I still thought it was pretty cool now now on the second to last issue they did have another penciling team who I have never heard of either of these there was JJ Kirby and Mike Miller and then they had like a ton of different inkers that were finishing up everything but I really thought it was a cool like look that they were providing and again maybe it was one of the inkers that was really defining the look but it had a a tighter ink line than a lot of the other art we were seeing but by issue 11 uh, they've been able to wake up Uh, Scotty kind of has his powers that he's finally activating so Bloodstorm, Iceman, the Brute, everybody is back on the right side it's just the Fallen and the Goblin Queen now that everybody are facing off against so the final double-sized special issue. It seemed like maybe it was supposed to be the last issue because at the very last page, it actually says the end. Uh, But it's strange because then it goes on, you know, for 20 more issues. I was like, wait a minute. But anyway, in this last issue, we kind of get a full explanation of what's going on. Uatu the Watcher is there and he explains that the Phoenix Force and the Goblin Entity kind of existed at the beginning of time. And so the it says we watched as it devoured the phoenix force and added its already immense power to its own watched as galactus himself fell before its powers so it says only a group of celestials were able to make it dormant for a while but then of course now madeline Pryor is the conduit to where it has a form again it can do things so now there's a battle for all reality i guess is what you would say the goblin entity wants to take over but one thing that's very cool is dr Doom all of a sudden shows up here. 
earlier, he's kind of at this United Nations thing, and he says, Thank you, sir. We hoped you'd rise to the challenge and accept our offer. Ladies and gentlemen of the Assembly, I present to you the one man capable of leading us in this war to end all wars, Dr. Victor Von Doom, President for Life of the United Latvian States. Please be seated. There is much work to be done. So he's a good guy in this universe now. He's wearing his green cloak, but the difference on his mask, it kind of looks a little bit actually like the Kyle Rayner mask because, you know, his mouth is open and then you can see his eyes and the top has a little divot out of it where you can actually see his scarred up face. So he's definitely disfigured in this reality here. But of course, you know, Doom is there now joining forces with the X-Men and the Six. But wouldn't you know it, Namor shows up and he helps out for just a minute. And I just think it's funny. He's like, it is done, Magneto. Our blood debt has finally been repaid. The way has been cleared for you and the rest of the surface dwellers. My best wishes do not go with you in this endeavor. I hope that you and your enemies finally wipe all the air breathers from the face of this planet and let the Atlanteans finally reclaim that which is rightfully ours. Know that next time we meet, it will be as enemies. You know, so I just thought that was kind of a fun twist. It's like, here's Namor. Bye, Namor. Yeah, we'll fight you next time. <laughs> so ultimately, though, they're going to have a big battle. The Fallen is kind of starts becoming conflicted. So now everybody is against the Goblin Queen, but it ultimately comes down to Havoc and Scotty and basically Scotty's powers. He's kind of like a Franklin Richards and just says, shut up and go away. And then it just banishes the Goblin entity. It's really anticlimactic. You're like, oh, that's all it took, huh? This kid had <laughs> the power in him all along. Well, now it's over. Thanks. Like I said, it says the end exclamation point. And I was like, oh, well, all right then. There are some pinups though that give more of a backstory for all the characters you were wondering about. Like there's one that actually, you know, shows everybody in the universe, including they mentioned Doctor Strange at one point, but he never shows up. And he's kind of got a more hooded, like you can't see his face. It's just dark with glowing red eyes inside the hood that is the same design as his cape and cowl type thing. But like I say, they do have some fun pinups in the end of the book. Like John Romita Sr. draws the man spider, you know, saving Gwen Stacy and killing the original Green Goblin. It's kind of a twist because you see he's actually tried to save him, but then the Green Goblin's neck gets snapped instead of Gwen Stacy. And then John Byrne draws the pinup for the Fantastic Four. But this is where I wanted to read just a little bit of their origin and how it's different. He says... And this is Havoc talking. He's like, I'm looking for team types. There are three members of the Fantastic Four still kicking around. I don't know who died. I don't remember that in the story. But anyway, sure, they're only human, but there's no shortage of guts amongst them. According to what I've been able to read, it was them who took to the stars to stop Galactus when he came looking to devour Earth. With no more than their guts, brains, and sweat, they defeated one of the most powerful beings in the galaxy. And I understand they just missed being fried by a storm of cosmic rays. So there you go. That's why they have the power suit and then they do the background story where you actually get to see how Rogue absorbed Colossus and all his powers as well. So anyway, overall, as I look at this series, I was just like, okay, it was pretty fun. 
I feel like this particular story they were going for really should have been told in like six issues at the most, like not spread out over an entire year's worth of issues because it was very repetitive. Like I say, okay, the Goblin Queen is manipulating people behind the scenes. Now everybody knows she's the bad guy, but they're trying to team up and gather forces to fight her. Like all of that, it just, it stretched out a little bit too far for me. But I do say I kind of enjoy this universe. I think Howard Mackey does a good job of building it in a way where you're like, okay, this person comes in naturally, and now we're talking to this person. He doesn't sit there and do a full explanation page of their origin and who they are in this reality. Just a little bit at a time is meted out, and you hope for more information on your favorite character as the series goes on. So I thought that was really fantastic. And so, yeah, I think this is a solid series. I'm looking forward to reading the other 20 issues of the annuals and everything else that came together. The one thing I did notice is that halfway through the series, a former guest on the podcast, Jason Liebig actually became the editor of Mutant X. So I'm kind of curious to talk to him and be like, okay, what happened around issue 11, issue 12, where you guys said, oh, maybe we will bring this back and keep it going. So maybe we can get an answer for that on an upcoming episode. But hey, that does it for my thoughts. But now we want to figure out what the comics were that were selling. So let's check out our top 10 comics list. All right, at number one here, we have Joe Matarera's Battle Chasers. Oh, yes, they say, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new top 10 champion. Why Battle Chasers? Here's three big reasons. It's a fantasy book, and fantasy's going great guns in the entertainment world. Think Xena, folks. Second, this book has been severely underordered, spelling scarcity with a capital S. And the biggest reason of all, the kids love Joe Matarera with a passion normally reserved for Slurpees and Snow Days. Trust us, this issue will still be sticking around a while. So it's interesting to hear that nobody was ordering it because you would think that Joe Matarera hot off X-Men doing his creator own thing. Like, did he take too long to put it out? Was there not enough promotion? You know, Wizards seem to be doing everything they could, at least. Alright, next one here, though, is the previous number one, which was Kiss the Psycho Circus number one. So this was written by Brian Holgan with art by Angel Medina, for those who don't know. So it says here, most circuses have a half-drugged elephant, warm soda, and a couple of monkeys riding tricycles. Big friggin' whoop. The Kiss guys weren't content with the state of this once proud form of American entertainment though. Their solution? A psycho circus! Tack the word psycho on an innocent word like circus and it's instant bucks, folks. Kiss the Psycho Circus number one has been riding high since its release. Now who's up for Psycho Ewoks? <laughs> now one thing I will say is that Psycho Circus was being sold in music stores and even Suncoast Video, so they had a little bit more to work with. You know, if you're buying the album, why not buy the comic? Very smart marketing, right? I will say, so I recently just saw Kiss on their last tour stop, claiming to be the last time they will ever play Los Angeles on tour at the Hollywood Bowl. Had a great time, but I took my Psycho Circus comics with me to read along, just to kind of catch up and remember this time in 1998. I was buying them at my local comic book store, but either way, this was just an exciting, exciting moment for a 
burgeoning Kiss fan. I just kind of hopped on board the previous year, so it was a big, big deal. All right, but speaking of big, big deals at this time, number three is Clerks number one. This is Kevin Smith. Jim Mafood says here, there's little doubt that Kevin Smith is the hottest name in comics these days. The writer-director of flicks like Chasing Amy and Clerks wrote this black and white one-shot from Oni Press, and it's doing even better business than Smith's Mallrats, which, come to think about it, ain't saying much. Man, everybody gives Mallrats such a hard time. That is a fun movie. Anyway, number four, Witchblade number one. Hey, we just talked to David Wall. Let's see what they say here. Want to know the two quickest ways to get Sarah Pizzini to beat your ass? The first is to snap your fingers at her and say, fetch me a beer, lady. The second is to tell her the following joke. What do you call Sarah Pizzini at the beach? A sand witchblade. Trust us, the last thing you'll remember is the taste of your own blood. (laughs) So it's back up. The previous month it was number six, now it's at number four, so just jump it all over the charts. All right, number five is Uncanny X-Men number 350. It's Stephen T. Siegel. The X-Men finally showed Gambit the door. Gambit certainly was cool and mysterious, but anyway, you slice it, he was still a weird-eyed guy who chucked playing cards at people. Plus, he tricked Jubilee with that 52 pickup game once too often. So yeah, we did hear that Mike Schwartz said Gambit was his favorite X-Men's. Now, number six... I can't believe this. Oni double feature, Kevin Smith. Yep. Need more proof that Kevin Smith is comics golden boy? Here you go. This comic's basically about a couple of stoned guys who encounter a dog with a gigantic, um, little rover. Should Smith's run on Daredevil involve a stoned hornhead chasing around a rotund crime lord sporting huge wood? Expect Smith's comics career to cool. <laughs> All right, JLA number one is number seven now. So we have Martian Manhunter must be pretty darn jealous of his fellow leaguers. After all, every single one of the JLA in issue number one also has his very own solo title, Sep John Johns. We'd say he's very likely green with envy, except that would probably cause Wizard fans to cancel their subscriptions with disgust. (laughs) Very self-aware of their own nature and puns. All right, number eight is the darkness number one. What's in a name? Well, a power like the darkness makes you shake in your boots. If Jackie Estacado's mystic weapon was called, say, Flower Fanny Power, you simply wouldn't have the same respect for it. You might even giggle. And you can be damn sure its comic book wouldn't still be burning up our top 10 chart. So it's number five last month. It's dropping a little bit down. Number nine is Danger Girl number one, though. J. Scott Campbell, Andy Hartnell, of course. This blockbuster cliffhanger debut continues its back market heat, astonishing those who read the first draft of Campbell and Hartnell's script. Originally, Danger Girl had a groundhog sidekick named Penfold, and battle a giant ornery frog in a business suit. It kind of sucked. All right, that's a deep cut. You know I live in the world of retro. Do you know what he is referencing there? Let me give you one second. Penfold, giant ornery frog villain, danger... Okay, we're talking about the Danger Mouse cartoon from the 80s. Yes, it was a British cartoon that was imported, shown on Nickelodeon back in the day, and Netflix did a reboot of it recently, a couple years back. So anyway, that's kind of funny, but that's deep. They don't even call out Danger Mouse directly. Finally, number 10 is The Avengers number one, Kurt Busiek, George Perez. Sure, Avengers is experiencing a renaissance, what with Busiek's writing and Perez's penciling, but what the heck are these heroes actually avenging? They're noble at all, so they're they're probably just avenging evil deeds in general, but a better title might be Ass Stompers of Bad Guys. 
Think about it, Busick. So last month it was seven, now it's down to ten. Yeah, you can't hold the uh, the golden spot forever there, but still some interesting, you know, newcomers to this. And obviously you see cliffhanger titles there. Sadly, no Crimson, so sorry, Umberto Ramos. But I, I will say it's interesting that Battle Chasers was number one. Meanwhile, Danger Girl was number nine, almost at the bottom of the list. Just a, the disparity, I guess, between how high profile each of those creators was. I don't know what the anticipation did difference would be, but maybe it is just fantasy versus sexy girl comics. Who knows? Well, we talked about the top 10 comics. Now we got to talk about our top 10 heroes and villains. Number one this month is Wolverine. Want to know what real mean looks like? Just take a picture of this. Wolverine is all about pure mean with no additives, preservatives, or artificial colors. Speaking of preservatives, Wolverine's been kicking ass and not even bothering to take names for, oh, how long now? A hundred years? Maybe more? It's hard to tell because he's got them damn memory implants floating around in his noggin that may or may not be true. Chances are he's older than Dick Clark and still stomping bad guy's kidneys into dust, which is a big part of the reason he the kitty's fave. Meanness sells. Number two is Spawn. Ever wake up with eye boogers? You know, those little green crusty things that accumulate in the corners of your eyes after you take a nice long nap? Well, even if you have it, Spawn has. And they've taken on a life of their own! They've grown to monstrous proportions and are eating Tokyo as we speak! They're so big and so wild that we hear the villain of the Spawn movie sequel is going to be giant sentient Spawn eye boogers. How can a man fight against his own mucus? Moviegoers are dying to know. <laughs> it's just because of this picture here. He has, you know, his green energy coming out of his eyes. Number Three, Witchblade. No one ever thinks about the practical uses of Sarah Pazzini's Witchblade. Sure, the ancient mystical gauntlet can fire blasts of hellacious hellfire and make nifty scaly armor to protect Sarah from super baddies, but can it help out in her day-to-day -day life? Sure it can. Let us count the ways. The Witchblade is a great can opener, a serviceable catcher's mitt, an all-purpose lockpick, a barbecue skewer, and it makes a great swizzle stick for gin rickies. Hey, it's got more uses than a Swiss Army knife, and for considerably less than 1995 plus shipping. You know, infomercials were all the rage at this point in time, so it only makes sense. Now, number four is The Darkness. Yeah, it's gotta be tough to be Jackie Estacado, this generation's bearer of the darkness. For starters, that bitchy and jealous chick is always after your ass and looking to kill you dead. For seconds, you can't risk having sex, because the minute you father a child, you also pass along the darkness power and kind of die. And for thirds, you've always got that damn plate over the bottom half of your face, making it hard to enjoy a Wendy's spicy chicken combo with Biggie fries. Oh well, the fact that Jackie's got a comic that sells umpteen thousand copies a month sorta soothes the pain. Oh, Biggie fries. It is crazy how giant everything in fast food has disappeared. Alright, number five, Deadpool. And just for context, he's wearing what I call basically Jim Lee headphones. You know, these weird giant things that his characters seem to have on their ears all the time. Anyway, all right. Deadpool's got one of those cool microphone headsets, just like Madonna. Maybe he'll follow in her footsteps, take up a singing career, wear bizarre cone-shaped bras, and star opposite Rosie O'Donnell in a baseball movie. Then again, maybe not. After all, being Marvel's sick, twisted psychosadist, but always funny hitman for hire, is what got Deadpool to the top in the first place. Plus, if he really followed in Madonna's footsteps, he'd have to sleep with Dennis Rodman. Number six, Hulk. Hulk, grit teeth. Hulk character. 
are not about proper dental hygiene or care for molars. Maybe not, but we're betting someone does. Can you imagine being the Hulk's dentist? The average Joe off the street gets a bit annoyed when a trip to the dentist hurts the old chompers. Imagine the rage of the gamma-radiated Hulk when his dentist strikes a Hulkish nerve. Memo to the dentist of the Marvel Universe, don't take chances. Load up on laughing gas when the Hulk is in the chair. Alright, number seven, Batman. So maybe the Witchblade has a lot of practical uses. Batman's got a utility belt that got the blade beat from here to Kalamazoo. In addition to much-seen battering and grappling hook, the belt also has a rarely seen bat howitzer, bat ping-pong paddle, and bat sweating to the oldies cassette, just in case Batman starts pounding down too many ho-hos and finds himself getting a bit paunchy. Trust us, all these popped up in one of them Elseworlds stories. <laughs> Number eight, the thing, it's clobberin' time. And no one dishes out a good clobber like the Yancey Street special, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing. Ben Grimm isn't the strongest hero on the block. Not that he's a pantywaist by any stretch of the imagination, but he's definitely got the biggest heart. When the chips are down and your back's to the wall, you know you can count on the thing. He's a heavy-duty, no-quitting, hard-hitting machine, and fans have always dug that about him. That's interesting to see the thing pop up here. Anyway, number nine, Captain America. Hey, Cap, open your eyes! How you gonna fight crime and stuff with your peepers shut? Well, if there's one man who could, it would be Captain America, Marvel's best fighter. Hell, half the non-superpowered guys of the Marvel Universe are deadlier than Jackie Chan armed with a weed whacker. And why? Because Cap taught him how to tussle. Hell, Jarvis the Avengers butler could whoop ass on a whole convention worth of fanboys all by himself. He's cap trained, baby. <laughs> and finally, number 10 is Preacher. Looks like good old boy Jesse Custer's got himself a grin from ear to ear. Wonder why? Could it be that he's happy to be part of this list? Maybe he's heard that razor blades are on sale and now he can finally get rid of that five o'clock shadow. Or maybe he knows that Preacher is one of the best-selling, most literate, and still-in-your-face shocking books to be found on the racks today. It's probably a bit of all three. Well, we've seen who's on top, but we want to find out who's scraping the bottom of the barrel. That's right, we're going to talk about our Mort of the Month. I feel like I might have seen this guy somewhere, or maybe it's just that generic a design. But we're talking about Sidewinder. Now, he's not just some chub who spent too much time under a tanning lamp. He's Sidewinder, the financial analyst supervillain from Kenosha, Wisconsin. It seems mild-mannered Seth Volker, tired of being a number cruncher for Marvel's evil Roxxon Corporation, volunteered for mutagenic alteration. Since they hadn't yet had their morning coffee, all Roxxon's eggheads could do was make Volker really friggin' ugly and plant a computer chip in his head that activated a teleportation cloak. Alas, though, Sidewinder wouldn't teleport fast enough to avoid getting his ass kicked by Captain America and the Thing on a regular basis. This goof must have made the folks back in Wisconsin real proud. <laughs> it's weird that that would be his power because, honestly, he's got this fin that goes around his neck that makes him look like the Dilophosaurus from Jurassic Park, but then he's got a cape and he's got, like, scaly arms, but his face kind of looks like a cross between the Thing and the red skull. Like, this costume's all over the place, so the Mordo meter still has three empty Mort heads, but uh, the fact that he was a financial analyst for Roxxon kind of cracks me up. All right, that does it for this segment. So one part of the magazine that's at the very end, literally the last page, that we have not really dug too deep into since it changed over from these brief interviews they would do, is time travel. Oh, yeah! 
the History Channel for comics, is how they describe it. Uh, but this one I thought was interesting because they're titling this Fantastic Voyage, and they're talking about John Byrne taking over Fantastic Four. Now, it was just interesting because as much as I talk about how much I enjoy John Byrne's projects, the one that he's most celebrated for outside of X-Men is Fantastic Four, and I've never read his run. Like, I've, I've read scattered issues I've just managed to pick up in back issue bins, but I've never dug deep into it. I've mostly read the era where She-Hulk was on the team, you know? So let me see what they say here, see what I can learn. Talk about understated. When Fantastic Four number 232 hit the stands in 1981, there wasn't a single blurb anywhere on the cover, just a shadowy image of Diablo working some arcane nastiness on our unsuspecting heroes. Even the usual tagline, the world's greatest comic magazine, was missing. There was nothing, in short, to trumpet this as the start of writer-artist John Byrne's standout five-year run on the book. But then, the title on the splash page pretty much said it all. Back to basics. I do have to say, this is one of the issues that I have, just interestingly enough, so I didn't know that I actually have the first issue of his run. Interesting. Byrne's arrival on FF certainly marked a return to the compelling character-driven storytelling of the book's early days. The issue's plot was fairly standard. Diablo sicked a quartet of demons on the team, exploiting the FF's individual limitations. The FF, of course, eventually united to overcome the threat, but not before Byrne systematically climbed inside each hero's separate little world. The book's original feel returned so swiftly, it's hard to imagine there was ever any doubt Byrne could pull it off, but while sweeping revitalizations have become his trademark over the years, DC's Superman books or Marvel's upcoming Spider-Man Twice Told Tales, his FF stint was the first time he'd undertaken such a task, and while he had co-plotted many of the stories he had penciled on Uncanny X-Men, he was new to the writer-artist game. Quote, An awful lot of stuff was dropped on my plate, and there was this tremendous sense of stage fright, Byrne remembers. Quote, There were parts of the book where I thought, boy, I'm such a genius. These are things nobody's ever done before. And there were other parts I looked at and went, God, I don't have a clue. One of the genius bits was to build up Sue Richards' character from Damsel in Distress into the kind of strong, single-minded heroine that's become another Byrne signature. Quote, Sue was the one beckoning me and saying, give me a personality. Give me something I could do, he says. Looking back at that initial issue, you could already see the seeds being planted. The story's first action sequence starred the invisible girl, and she cleverly utilized her powers in a whole new way, as transportation. By issue number 284, Byrne rechristened her the Invisible Woman. Byrne's run featured many other equally memorable character studies. There was Sue's miscarriage, Johnny Storm's first involvement with the artist Alicia Masters, Johnny's guilt after a young fan tragically tried emulating him by flaming on, and in a lighter vein, She-Hulk's revealing run with a nudie mag editor, which we've covered on a past episode. <laughs> and it all started here in FF number 232, a book that most certainly couldn't be judged by its cover. For those of you who are maybe older fans or just big, you know, Fantastic Four fans that have gone back to read it, I would love to hear your thoughts. I, I'm really just interested in our generation, because I know there's the older generation who was reading it when it was coming out, but how many of us kids from the 90s have gone back? You know, we think about the heroes reborn you know, era of Fantastic Four or something is like a big moment. But anyway, just curious to hear your thoughts. And I'm curious to know, are you ready to wrap this thing up? I think it's time. Yeah, so this has been a fun uh, little excursion here, getting into a wizard's half, because we have plenty of things coming up here. So our next episode will be a conversation on the wizard files with Hank Canals. Do you remember Hank Canals? Well, he is one of those guys who was there at the very beginning of Wizard. And at the very beginning beginning 
of Image Comics. That's right. He was the scripter on Youngblood number one. He was Rob Liefeld's pal. And he has gone on to have an amazing career in comics. I mean, he's worked everywhere and at like the highest levels in a lot of cases. So he's a really interesting guy. I had a fantastic conversation. He is actually the publisher of Michael Schwartz's book, Armored. So Mike Schwartz is joining us for that conversation as well because he wanted to get to know his publisher better. So it's a really fun kind of back and forth. We both had different types of questions for Hank. He was a super nice guy. So I think you will enjoy that conversation and get a look behind the scenes at some of those early days of Image, uh, but also some stuff you might not have expected. Now, after that, we're coming back with episode 85. That's just going to be me and Michael, the classic crew. Uh, we got some news for you there that we'll be sharing. And also just want to give you a heads up that for some of those interviews, I mean, most of you listening to this are probably listening to every episode we do. And that's awesome. Thank you so much for checking out everything. But for those of you who are maybe just checking in here or there, and for whatever reason you, you know, this just started playing, go on over to YouTube because these interviews that we're doing now, we are posting the interviews to our YouTube channel. Just again, to kind of give some fresh content over there, we will be back with more haul videos, some top 10 videos, things like that. But in the meantime, we just thought, you know, YouTube is where a lot of people are going to find, you know, their podcast these days. Okay. Hey, we'll give you a little taste of what we do here, but once you come over to the main feed for all the fun. So speaking of which, uh, you know where to find us, wizardscomics.com. Over 240 episodes now, it's out of control. There's just so much more that we're going to be bringing your way. In fact, let me just stop here and announce it. If you stayed this long for a half episode, you deserve a little something special. We have finally booked our interview with Garib Seamus. Yes, Garib Seamus is going to be on the podcast. We are going to get into all the details of those early days of Wizard, just his whole perspective on the experience and almost 20 years of publishing that magazine. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. I have no idea how open he's going to be, where he's going to take it, but uh, we've been chasing him for a while and it's finally the time. So just letting you know that that will be coming your way in December. So just something to put on your calendar. Oh, I get a little Garib Seamus to end the year. Yes, you do. All right, but anyway, uh, you know where to find us to get all the latest news, find out when that drops and everything else. We're at Wizards Comics on X. We are on Wizards underscore comics at Instagram. We are on Blue Sky at Wizards Comics. You know, we're on TikTok. We don't have much going on there. We did finally set up our Threads account because a long time ago we put out a vote and you guys voted you wanted us on Threads. Don't know exactly what we're going to be doing there, but soon enough uh, we'll be posting content. Of course, patreon.com forward slash wizards comics guys if you're not over there look it's five bucks a month which does help the podcast to continue to grow but i will tell you there's just so much extra that you're getting for that five dollars a month i mean really the, we talk about the uncut episodes especially you know in this interview with hank canals we kind of went off on some tangents and we cut those out that's available now that is there it's coming out weeks before you know it hits the main feed uh but there's other things along those lines on the main episodes you know we'll just kind of i'll say eh, you know what that's that could be for patreon i don't think that needs to be you know in this conversation but it's still fun interesting stuff so there's that plus you're getting your scan of the issue which are very coveted people are very excited just to be able to flip through that pdf uh, but also you're getting the bonus 90s super cinema episodes it's just casual superhero comic book movie conversation but it's very fun coming up next we are doing the punisher but which the punisher there were so many right so we put the punisher with Dolph Lundgren. we have 
the Punisher with Thomas Jane. We have the Punisher with Ray Stevenson. We have them all up there and we're seeing who is going to win out. Which Punisher does everybody want to hear us talk about? And I will tell you, I've only seen one of them. I've only seen the 1989 film. So this will be a first time watch if we get some of those 2000s ones. Either way, uh, there's so much more than that because we're always dropping little hints uh, of what is to come a little earlier than everybody else is going to hear it. Plus you get access to our exclusive Slack chat channel, which is an app where you can just have it on your phone and the conversations just go throughout the week. You know, the people who are on there bring up topics. I'm bringing up topics. People are jumping in. Also, don't forget that you could also have the Patreon chat, which is just Michael and I getting, you know, into our collections, getting into news, the planning for the podcast, what's going to come up. I mean, there are some big changes coming for 2024. And if you want to know what that's all about, get on Patreon, guys. Again, we just appreciate the support, but we also enjoy having kind of that inner circle, those people we can share some of our most exciting news with. Anyway, thank you again for checking out this mini episode. Stay tuned for more. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.